you end up just talking for like hours and hours about black holes and where's the center and of the extract universe. that what which is bogus and that which is not doesn't seem to exist to think of objects not as single things but has been made up of many constituents. Bill Nye made me hate science. When you're out at the pub and someone says, hey, what, uh, so what do you do? And I'm like, hey, well, I'm an astrophysicist. Hello, everybody. You are on Natural Reaction here on Zed Digital. We're talking about, okay, well, look, it's it's our egg special. Yep. It's going to be an egg special. We, it's Easter. It's Easter on Sunday, and we will have all missed it, but everyone will have just had a four-day week Four-day holiday, four-day weekend. So you know what? It's time for me to talk about eggs. Yes, we're, we're trying. We're going to try our best to limit the egg puns, but I make no promises. I'm surprised you didn't do an egg pun. Yeah, there. well, I was. I was very impressed. I've been dreading all the egg puns. I, I feel like there's a lot of judgment being thrown my way, <laughs> and uh, it's Easter Sunday. This is the Lord's Day. <laughs> I, would, I would ask you to uh, turn the other cheek. Okay, let's let's calm down a bit here. Look, this is a secular program, I'll have you know. <laughs> so, um, today we're going to be talking about fun stuff to do with. Well, we've got we've got egg talk. We've got egg talk. We're going to be talking about how different eggs form and why you might get a double yolk sometimes, or why you might get a weird squishy egg, depending on if you ever had chickens, you'll know like how the different types of eggs that you can get. Yeah, that this are is very odd. I think this is like an interesting thing about how most people consume food and stuff in general where because we're like so we're so distant from the actual production and stuff there's this expected uniform uniformness of food products uniformity uniformity thank you very much nadia of, yeah, that's artificial though. Yeah, I mean, it, so it, many bananas get thrown out every year because they're too I mean, long. That's what I mean. But it, what? It, it, you're, you're right. It's I like, know. Yeah. You should definitely check out the um, checkout episode. No, no, check out um, War on Waste. War on Waste on the ABC. Very, very good. Anyone just look up anything to do with food waste statistics if you ever want to depress yourself. Uh, it's it's phenomenal. Yeah. But yeah, you're, that's right. You're 100 right. It's that it's entirely an artificial expectation, but it exists. Because of this massive production that we have, mass consumerism, yeah. yeah, yeah. So if you actually go up, you'll notice like there is a way bigger variety of shapes and forms and morphs of everything that I'm you eat. still of the opinion that this this lifetime is the only one that's going to have this kind of stuff. Like you know, the ability to get food from any t- different type of the world at your supermarket, like. Totally fresh, totally like. I think this, like, we take this for granted now, but I do not think it's going to be like this in fifty years' time. Am I? Oh, how do you think it's going to be? Um, I feel like we're going to go backwards, not not backwards in like, but we're either going to be more sustainable. So it's going to be a situation where you can't get potatoes out of season because potatoes hurt the environment if they're out of season, or it's just going to be a thing where we've messed up the earth so much that they can't do it. So you're going to have a lot, like, you're going to have a much um, fewer like bananas are a really good example because bananas there's only one type of banana so if they yeah, manage and they're to, susceptible to uh, fusarium yeah yeah so if if s- fusarium wins we're not gonna have any bananas yeah but I think we're gonna find ways to alter bananas so we can grow them uh yeah actually, yeah but it needs to be more sustainable though more otherwise sustainable. the whole thing keeps happening the Aitken Labs are working on bananas actually just above me in uh in UQ bananas are fascinating people at home uh because we've basically made them Down syndrome on every single gene in their chromosome uh so every single chromosome in their genome all the way around uh so we've duplicated extra chromosomes yeah, in their genome they're trisonomic on like every single chromosome so they've got three copies of every single chromosome uh that's why they don't have any seeds if you ever had you can go to the sydney botanical gardens and they still have bananas with seeds they're really? terrible yeah they're terrible <laughs> um banana seeds are quite big they you can't you know how you looked 
peel open a banana and just hack into it. You can't do that unless you want like a mouthful of seeds and bitter woody banana. Wow. Uh, like the original mango, which you can still get in some parts of Malaysia. The village used to have a few called bachang. I don't know what it is in English. Please look it up. Uh, its skin, if you peel it, still has a little bit of acidic sap come out of it. Like it, it still will burn you a little bit. Uh, it, is it just like a giant uh, skinned pit? Or no, no, no. It, it's quite similar to normal mango, so the flavor's di- a bit different, and mm. its skin, if you when you peel it, it can burn you a little bit. That's insane, but we should keep talking about this after yes. we um, talk about I like how we diverge yeah. from eggs to bananas. bananas. It's because I love talking about bananas. We didn't even finish talking about bananas. We're like, <laughs> yeah, bananas, mangoes. The point is that we basically wiped out all types of bananas except the one type that we breed heavily. And yeah. uh, it's a, almost a complete monoculture of one species. That's why, and they, because they don't have any seeds anymore, they basically only clone themselves. They don't have any genetic diversity being introduced. So fusarium is just like a really big pain. We just form. really messed up our plants. We've really messed up our food production. Anyway, um, I'm also going to be talking, that works really well into the other thing we're talking about today, which is chocolate, because Easter Sunday, you've probably eaten way too much chocolate. I will be eating too much chocolate. I have already. I ate all of my Easter chocolates last night. It was a bad idea. Bad plan. No, don't forget anything. Um, but yeah, we're going to be talking about some of the overhyped claims of chocolate and how, you know, oh, well, it you know, it's it helps with uh, all these different things that it actually probably doesn't. No, and also, are Easter eggs bad for the environment? Yes. Everything is bad yeah, for the look, environment. Look, uh, yeah. <laughs> what a depressing show! If, if, it ever, if you ever ask, like, does X... Consumptive good mean why bad thing for the environment? Yes, it does. Like yes, it, it, you. Yeah, that's our clickbait headline. Yeah, is but it bad for the environment? Top line. Yes. <laughs> I love how good we are at clickbait. Like, is this bad for the environment? Instead of find out more at ten, it's like, nah, it is just. <laughs> yeah. If you if you want to find out more about it, keep listening. <laughs> um, and then I think finally, Izzy, you might be talking about a spaceship. Oh yes, yeah, sp- spaceship and some. Uh, egg-laying behaviors around hydrothermal vents because again this is an excellent show there you go there's the there's the first egg pun i tried my best i held off spaceship is yeah so it's falling to earth we don't know when find out more in the next 20 minutes or so two hours 20 minutes minutes. (laughs) we've got longer than that i think we've been talking for longer than that jacinda knows that like Keeping you guessing is the best way to keep you back. So <laughs> between 20 minutes and two hours is when you'll find out more. Um, so we were talking before the break about... We were talking about a bunch of stuff, to be honest. Yeah, it, it went into this whole... It, we went on the rabbit hole in a very interesting way. Yeah, I feel, I feel like we should apologize for I how... I refuse um, to apologize. How weird that intro was. If you're used to our regular intros, like... Just get, on used you. To, just get used to a weird show because, I mean, we've all had a couple of days off. Izzy's on uh, on pun alert right here. Yep. It's just going to be, it's going to be Bedlam. Death pun one. Is it, wait, is one, no, no. Is one higher than five? I, I don't, actually don't know. I so, thought five was higher than for one. What? Yeah. For what are you talking Def about? Con. For like the, the US, we're going to go to nuclear war thing. I think, oh. I think you're right. No, I think Def Con five is the, is the higher one. Yeah, I have no idea, hey. I think it's like at, at, two, at three is when they have the, the B-52s flying around and they can drop a nuke basically anywhere in the world and in like four minutes or something like that. So Who gave those people so much power? Uh, fools. <laughs> <laughs> the people. By which I mean us, yeah. So for those interested, DEFCON means Defense Readiness Condition. And it's an alert state used by the United States Armed Forces and it prescribes five graduated levels of readiness or states of alerts. And it increases in severity from DEFCON 5 to DEFCON 1. So I was actually wrong. 
Oh, sorry. So okay, one. five being the least severe and one being the most severe. Okay, well, I'm going to get back to eggs <laughs> <laughs> because, um, again, we managed to just jump out of everything and go into some weird tangent. So what I wanted to talk about today is obviously we'll be eating lots of eggs over Easter, but actual eggs are pretty interesting when you think about what they are. And if you've seen a photo, like I mean, these are these go on Reddit every couple of years and it's like different colours of eggs. Mm. So you'll get like ones that are like white and then you'll get ones that are blue and you get ones that are green and brown and all that kind of stuff and they're all variations of eggs that you really don't see when you're at the shops but which came first to the chicken or the egg the egg yeah the egg pretty clearly obviously okay. yeah we believe in evolution here the, <laughs> yeah. the concept of the egg dates back to the ocean before anything had left the ocean well basically about 360 million years ago the ancestors ancestors of all terrestrial vertebrates started colonizing like the land and the way they had to do this is transition from, you know, birth in water to birth in land, and the egg formed that protective function. Mm. Also, like, eggs are a pretty, pretty ancient way of reproducing. Eggs are Dinosaurs like, had eggs. Yeah, but also, also like, the proto-fish. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also dinosaurs. But also so. dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are pretty sick. Yeah. Although, dinosaurs maybe some practice sick. live birth. It's hard to know. Yeah, I guess you can't really tell, can you? Well, like... There's some things you can, I can imagine you can make some conclusions about, yeah, like hip structure and do they have, yeah. like things that would that look like that would allow them to carry uh, a thing to term. But again, what percentage of animals get preserved as fossils? What is it they said like if every single human died, about like eight of us would be preserved in fossilized remains that would last. Do you reckon there's long? a way for like say that there's going to be some crazy? Extinction, um, event. extinction event. Do you reckon it? We could like fast enough get to like a pile of like um, sap or something, or like just fall onto like an ice brick? Because like you... ice could work. Ice could work because that way you could. That's like that guy who um is like hundreds of thousands of years old, and he's like like one of the first humans, but oh, he's fully preserved because um he fell onto an ice is it bog... chasm. Is or it something. the Bogman? Bog... No, that's a swamp. So I think it's you talk about man, more yeah. like cryopreserved yeah they, they literally people. you could see his tattoos on his skin like oh. his skin is like like oh, i don't know about the leathery as hell but. Uh, how interesting would that be though if a uh, human race gets wiped out then the future whatever species that rises up after that just goes these people only hung around bogs and ice icy places <laughs> our entire biology gets rewritten i mean i feel like you'd be able to see like our structures though you'd be able to see our buildings well, i mean things. depends how far in the future but yeah but I, I assume. The, the buildings would still be around. Not not like around around. You couldn't live in them, yeah. but I'm sure there'd be evidence of them being there. Was it, they reckon the Hoover Dam will continue to produce electricity. If everyone left yes tomorrow, the Hoover Dam would continue to produce electricity until like six years of no of not of unmanned function until wow. like it would break down. Uh Anyway, back to eggs. Yeah, back to eggs. This is such a weird episode. I'm so sorry, everybody. Um, so, can you... Th this particular article is on the conversations by a lecturer in ornithology, ecology, conservation, and parasitology. Um, her name's Maggie J. Watson. Um, and she was talking about how eggs are formed and whether they... Um, like, the different kind of variations that you can get in eggs. So, um, if you don't under... Like, it's hard to explain without a diagram, but basically, if you imagine like an intestine, um, which one? Uh, let's go. Your, let's go your large intestine. There we go. Um, and then you've got like an the egg basically goes through a chute that looks like the large intestine, um, and it, like it'll slowly go through there. And as it goes through the intestine, it'll um, 
form more and more stuff on it. So it'll get the, the yolk and the egg on the outside is already there, but then the shell will kind of form as it slowly goes through this like intestine type thing. The, um, uh, I think it's it's got a name for it. Let me see if I can that find it. That would also it. be as it goes through the intest- intestine, quote unquote. Yeah. It's like it, I, it's a uterus, but it, it, it's easier overduct. to picture it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, it's kind of like a long sausage uterus. Yeah. It, it's it's basically, yeah. It's a really good. That's why I said, that's why I said uh, yeah, intestine. No. Yeah. So as it goes through, I imagine <laughs> there's a lot of calcium that gets attached to the membrane. Mm. Yeah. And that forms a solid structure. That is exactly what happens. So, um, but it's interesting to look at the different types of eggs that can happen. That when you think about, like, you you don't usually the eggs that you get at the shops are perfect, and you know they're, they're, there's no issues with them. But sometimes you will get double yolks, and you can see, like, if you search double yolks on YouTube, you can see these people getting really excited about either double yolks. Or sometimes there'll be an egg inside of an egg. Oh, I've seen mm. those. Yeah, which it's is really so cool. Weird. When chickens get a bit older, you start seeing uh, eggs without shells being laid more often. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, extra calcified shells is one way of doing it. So that's, um, it basically has white bands on it. Um, and the eggs gets a little bit stuck in the overduct or the intestine during a time when it rotates. Um, and then it gets extra helping of calcium. And then it can make the shell quite lumpy. In my which head, is cool. You know those like... The factory lines where they they put the layers of things on and just get stuck yeah. there. Another layer of calcium. That's exactly what happens, except mm. in a chicken. And yeah, <laughs> uh, you can also get double shells. Um, and so well, they're not a hundred percent sure what happens with this one, but her best guess is um, that the egg goes through the uterus as normal, and then instead of being laid, is sucked back up through the uterus and then goes through the whole process again, which would be kind of crap. Mm. But um, kind of not crap. <laughs> I got that one. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to walk out of the studio here. Excuse me. Um, no shells. So um, eggs with no shells are very unusual and they occur when the muscle contractions in the overduct are too fast and the egg literally flies out without stopping <laughs> at the shell gland for some shells. <laughs> this writer is quite good. Um, apparently she's seen it in the wild in seabird colonies once or twice and basically it looks like someone cracked an egg and then just left it with the shell. So, I don't know. I think that's kind of cool. And, oh, there's this bonus video here. Have you seen this video, guys? It's these Japanese um, girls that... Oh, yeah. Is. No, I have. They, they they raise the egg outside in a clear plastic environment so you can see all of the development happen. Yeah, yeah. which is insane when you think about it. You can literally crack an egg open and uh, still get it to work. It has right. to be fertilized, though. You can't go to Coles or Woolies and grab one of yes. those eggs. <laughs> It's not going to do anything except for us. I remember the um the paper that this came from, like the this the originally. Yeah, they it, did a paper it, on it. Yeah, it doesn't seem that hard to do. Like, no. I feel like you could do this with about eighty dollars worth of stuff that you get from the supermarket. The only difficulty is finding fertilized eggs. I mean, wouldn't it be cute to have some little baby chickens too? Like, just... mm, that's true. Oh no, but you could raise them. You could raise them. Did I you guys ever chickens. do the developmental biology course? Um, where you got to play with chickens developing and no. see if you can alter the development of a chicken. No, I've heard about this course, though. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, so there's a developmental course um, that I took. And basically what you do is you introduce um, mutagenizing agents yeah. into a developing embryo of a chicken. Now, these embryos... EMS? Hmm? EMS? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I think there were different types of chemicals oh, okay. you could use. But basically, you introduce them into a developing chicken embryo. Uh, these chickens are killed, I think, after 14 or 28 days of development. Or Wait, 14. Basically, they don't develop into much. Well, killed. 
that depends on your philosophical position on the matter, but yeah. Well, they, they aren't allowed to develop to a stage where they can feel any pain. So it's basically just the basic body of a developing chicken to see if you could actually induce an extra limb to grow and all of that. And it was really cool. It was very interesting. So you have a, a, an egg that has to be like opened up and mm. then you just introduce the mutagenizing agent into like a specific site. We tried to get an extra, an extra head to form, but it, it didn't work. <laughs> well, I mean, that kind of makes sense. But you're doing, you using random mutagenesis because like, like, things like EMS just, you're not controlling. Oh no, this, I don't think it was EMS. It was a actual uh, liquid, um, cos, uh, not carcinogenic, mutagen. Mutagen, right. So but I want to say tamoxifen, but I I may be wrong there. Mm. Who knows? It's just hard to like go, oh, we're going to yeah. hope for a new head. No, but the most that you will actually see is a tiny bud. Mm. So because the, the chicken embryo isn't allowed to develop into any real significant stage, you just kind of see like, oh, look, a little bud next to uh, its like wing where its wing is slowly developing. That's crazy. Develop- um, so, so take over your life. Insufficient eggshells also happen. Mm. That's that okay. This one, it, I think it's really important to think about how eggs form in this particular situation because the calcium that um, you get on the outside of an egg is actually they strip it from it's it's from the the chicken itself, right? So it'll be from the bones of the chicken. So really old chickens actually have more issues with like um, um, I, I don't know what the chicken equivalent of like. Osteoporosis <laughs> is, but it'd be that. I think that. it is just osteoporosis. Yeah. So, um, and obviously, the more eggs that they lay throughout their lives, the more that this happens. Um, and so apparently, it's not just chickens that do it, though. Um, apparently, there that she's seen instances of wild birds eating seashells, presumably in an effort to make eggs without stripping the calcium from their own bones. So again, that's another way. Yeah, I, it's interesting when you think about how, like, people actually like how the food that we eat. Ends up there. Even even more interesting. So as um, the embryo of the chicken is developing, it actually uses that calcium that's being deposited on the outside of the eggshell to create its bones and minerals. Wow. So as the embryo develops, the shell generally starts off a bit thicker mm. and then it reduces um, in thickness as that calcium and other minerals go into actually providing some mineral and nutrients content for the developing embryo. And that's also like this thinning of the shell as it develops also helps facilitate like the chick being able to break out of the shell. Do you think that happens in cows as well? Because I mean, if they're producing... They don't lay eggs. No, no, no. <laughs> no I know, we're just messing. No, I meant like with milk though, because milk's a high amount, has a high well, amount of calcium in it. Where does that calcium come from? Oh, uh, yeah. uh, I think that's a very different mechanism because obviously as a, a mammal is developing in the uterus, it's still getting minerals and all those oh, yeah, true. things to develop like in the uterus. This is a different process where it's actually coming from the shell because it's not like developing live inside the animal. It's developing in a shell. But are you asking like where the calcium comes from for the milk? Yeah, would that also come from the bones? The bones. Pro- probably. I mean, uh, even humans, at some point we stop being able to uh, store calcium and you subsist off the your calcium intake and the intake and your natural calcium supply from your bones but like depend different from person to person but you do stop storing calcium at a point in your life and it's Crazy. quite it's quite early on which is why calcium is such an important thing to get when you're young build up those reserves so when you're older you can put off things like osteoporosis for as long as possible hmm. there you go interesting stuff no egg yolks are a thing. Mm-hmm. They're called also called dwarf or runt eggs. <laughs> so you runt crack open eggs. an egg and there's no yolk. That would be um, so sad. <laughs> apparently they're usually less than half the size of a normal egg um, and they're a result of stimulation of the oviduct 
by a foreign object, like a blood clot. Just like a pearl is made by an oyster, wrapping a bit of sand in layers and layers of calcium carbonate, the same can happen in the overduct. Ah, oh, okay, so they just something, like a blood clot. Mm, and it just has something collect around it. Yeah, yeah, basically it's, yeah. And that's right, people, pearls are just oyster spit. Delicious. And time. <laughs> so it's kind of like a little kidney stone or an oviduct stone, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. well, it kind of is. Yeah, because a kidney stone is similar where it's a, a bit of structure and you just build up a uh, layer and layer and layer upon it until you've got a, an obstruction in your urethra. urethra. Uh, very similar where it's just calcium buildup until you've got an obstructive egg-like structure in your cloaca. Hmm. <laughs> your cloaca. Well, like <laughs> the proverbial you have a cloaca, <laughs> I choose not to answer that question. I feel like I'm attacked right now. Do we now. need to explain what a cloaca is? Oh yeah, so most of us mammals have a like two different have at least like a few different tubes for various waste disposal and excretion. So solid waste, liquid waste, having children, other like you know, and other various things. Cloaca is a sort of all-in-one type thing. It's a pee-poo hole. Yeah, pee-poo baby hole. Mm. All three mm. in one. Three in one deal. It's an it's an efficient setup. Uh, <laughs> is what happens when you need to fly a lot. I think. <laughs> um, and finally, for weird egg types, there is the classic double yolker. Um, apparently, some chickens have even selectively been selectively bred for creating double yolkers. And if you can think about how big these eggs are, they're they're bigger than a regular egg. They're quite large. Um, and so they're created when two yolks are ovulated within a couple of hours of each other, like twins, and they end up traveling through the overduct together. Um, and they're most common when chickens start laying before their system settles into a steady groove. But as a double yolk chicken breed shows, they can be bred for. If both the ovum in the yolk are fertilized, they can both become viable, apparently, but a bit squishy, I was gonna say, yeah. chickens. Uh-huh. <laughs> Because, yeah, I mean, could you, you think about how the, yeah how much room a, a chicken takes up in an egg? A double chicken would be um, interesting. But I guess the same thing happens with, like, pregnancy, right? Like, mm. your pregnant belly. Slightly smaller, like, offspring, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well. If you, get, if you get twins, it's, you know, they're squeezing a lot into a small space. You are, indeed. I'm just thinking, I wonder if, like, what would be more. Just because, like, in an sh- eggshell, because it's a hard shell. There's less give, yeah, and you. It's kind of important to not be like hatching so soon, because mm. mm. like human humans, we're quite good at. We you know we have hospitals and things. <laughs> <laughs> there's no there's no chicken hospital <laughs> to look after slightly premature births as a result of just not enough room in this show. Your nice reaction here on Z Digital, and we're talking all about eggs. 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 eggs and our tangents on eggs. Yeah, eggs and then everything not related to eggs because we keep getting distracted. Eggs and sundry. Eggs and sundry. Yeah, that kind of works, yeah. actually. I like that. That's our next podcast. It's eggs and sundry. It'll <laughs> just be about eggs. No, and it'll be sundry. about everything but eggs. <laughs> <laughs> so, everything and eggs, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I like eggs. Me too. Eggs look good. Have you, have you guys tried duck eggs? Yeah, I have. They are so delicious. Mm. Not really. I would like to have my own chickens, though. I feel like that would be amazing. I, you have chickens in coughs. My folks my have chickens in coughs. I do love having chickens. Yeah, they're just like, and I want to like pick them up and like I want I want them to love me. You have to like look train them. It's, from, not, it's, yeah. not, it's actually not very difficult because they they they're very good at associating things with food. For instance, like yeah, we take the compost bin out to them, and now like they know that the bin means food. Aww. So like you can put the bin somewhere and they'll all run. If you carry the <laughs> bin, they'll all run to you and follow you around. <laughs> 
and it's gone to the point where if you walked in the general direction of their their like hutch at a certain time, at like any time past like four o'clock, they like, know. Yeah, like it's even if even if, even if you don't have the bin anymore, they're like, oh my god, and like, <laughs> we let them out, so they'll see you from like everywhere. <laughs> Just and come running. Come so running. actually, I saw a really funny tweet the other day about chickens, and they were talking about how um this this chicken had got out from this girl's like hutch, and so you know, so this chicken was on the road, and she was like, all these people were, like crowding around it, like, what are we gonna do with this chicken? And they're like, so what do we do? Do we get a net? Like how? To, and then she was like, no, no, it's all good. And then like she bends down, and she's like, okay, come on. So that's like her signal for the chicken. So like, because the chicken associates her with food, and so the chicken just like follows her back <laughs> to her thing. And like obviously that makes sense, but she's like, I'm pretty sure my entirety of my neighbors think that I uh, trained my chickens like a dog. Yeah, <laughs> in, in wrong in in the past, she would have been burned as a witch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> chickens are great though I my grandmother used to have these bantam chickens and they're the oh, ones with the fluffy yeah. feet mm. those they're are the gorgeous. best Aww. yeah I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna when I have enough money I'm gonna have a big farm and I'm gonna have chickens and I'm gonna have like it's gonna be super, super, super I hate so to good. out my mom on this but like she loves like cool chickens and so she completely <laughs> gave up buying chickens for laying eggs she's just like oh those are sick <laughs> If she had her way, she would have like her own little chicken breeding thing. Like, all right, I, I recommend everyone look up wine.chickens. They're gorgeous. Um, spend some time doing that. There is actually a, a book called uh, Fanta- was it Beautiful Chickens or Fantastic Chickens? Of and it is oh, they li- are so pretty. Oh, my goodness. literally just a photography They're book like- of chickens, and it is the best read. I will recommend it. So if you want to know so what these things look like, they look like... Have you, if you guys have ever seen The Rainbow Fish, the, um, the book, the, the one with all oh, those yeah, scales, yeah. it's like the chicken equivalent of that. They've got like lacy wings. Yeah, crazy. They look a little bit scaled. But like, like glittery scales. In like a really pretty way. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. I do recommend everyone could. But you can, I mean, even if you're not getting them for egg laying purposes, though, surely they would still lay eggs. Oh, no, they do. Yeah, exactly. They do. But Uh, they're just not, like, as big or? They're not as big. Maybe they don't have a bigger laying period. Like, your standard Orphington lays pretty much up until it dies and that Uh. kind of thing. Like, there's a whole bunch of reasons why you get specialized egg laying breeds. Hmm. There you go. Mm. I don't know. I just, I want chickens now. Rhode Island anyone, Red is also another great chicken. If anyone that is listening has any chickens and just wants someone to come and like pat them, <laughs> I'm I'm your lady. That's that's me. You can, be, you can advertise yourself as a chicken minder. I, I will mind chickens all day, every day. I do love how chickens and a lot of other birds are born with this innate pecking behavior where they don't know anything else except how to peck for food. From <laughs> yeah. the second they are born yeah. to the second they die, that is just the most ingrained behavior that they have. And cheeping, cheeping to each other. That's really important. If anyone ever wonders why chickens never shut up, it's because like, they're always talking to each other. That che- like, They're always clucking, going, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. That's why like mother hens can know when their babies go missing and stuff. Because uh. it sounds like they all sound the same to us. But... If you're a chicken, you can recognize each of those individual calls and you'll know that, oh, that one's over there, that one's over here, it's over there. And if one goes missing, you'll you'll know. Yeah. See, that's what chickens say about, about us. Yeah. They all sound the they same. The same. Yeah. They all look the same. Like, how do you how do you tell the difference? They're so big. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they all come with food, it's fine. <laughs> Nadia, chicken. No, I mean egg me, please. Egg you. <laughs> we're getting we're getting so off topic. At least we said on chickens this time. Yeah, yeah exactly. eggs eggs and chickens still count. <laughs> um but yeah, so earlier on you were talking about how chickens potentially well, how they develop and the different ways they can develop. So I'm going to chat about how they actually get their shape. Oh, how uh, they get that, that rounded bottom and the kind of like pointy top. Yeah, but interestingly, like eggs can come in 
a massive range of sizes ranging from like perfectly spherical to like very oval oblong type of shapes you also get the sort of just funny specialized shapes like these guys which you won't be able to see at home but these guys will Oh, they look like pears. Yeah, they look like pears, and it's to stop them from rolling off cliffs. See, interestingly, the researchers um, of this article, uh, I think um, Mary Caswell Stoddard, was she the same one that wrote your article? No. No. I may have misheard. Mm. Maggie something. Maggie. Yeah. Maggie, Mary. Maggie Watson. Anyway, this article was published in the journal Science last year, and they initially thought, like, that was one of the the parameters of, like, they thought that cliff-nesting birds laid those conical eggs um, so they can roll in a tight circle and avoid being dropped off. Mm. Um, but these guys took a, a very different approach. So that was one of the hypotheses which they wanted to test to see if this was actually an evolutionary trend. So these researchers, they basically characterized the shape of eggs from about 1,400 species of bird. And they developed a whole bunch of models that explains how an egg's membrane determines its shape. And also they found that the shape of an egg correlates with the flight's ability of a bird, suggesting that adaptations for flight may have been critical drivers of this egg-shaped variation in birds. And they looked at about... um, So they began to plot the shapes of these different eggs, and they defined it by like a pole-to-pole symmetry. So if it's perfectly spherical has no poles if it's a lot more like the canonical cliff laying egg birds mm. bird eggs yeah. bird eggs is better <laughs> egg birds is much better egg birds <laughs> um then they obviously had a different definition of like pole to pole and they did this for approximately 50,000 eggs which represented 14% of species in 35 orders of birds and they also included two different distinct orders And the researchers found that egg shape is a continuous thing. And basically, a lot of species overlap this continuous trend. So going from perfectly spherical, it slowly changes. And it's always overlapping to, like, the perfectly oblong. Oh, I see. And they've known that, like, the egg membranes play an important role in the egg shape. And this, they developed a a mechanistic model of pressure. So for how the membrane develops in the overduct... And the elasticity represented for it. So the variation of shape comes from the variation in the membrane's thickness and the material properties and the ratio of different pressures and stretchiness of the membrane as it's developing. Okay. Uh, so, the, yeah, so it's very much like a pressure build. Pressure th- yeah. Blah. And a lot of that comes down to how the oviduct is actually shaped, which um, I guess in turn comes from how the bird is shaped. So, so that makes sense why flight adaptions would be uh, such a powerful agent of this sort of like uh, this shape where it's like... It definitely influences it. Yeah, because well, um, like, flight, in order to, you know, be able to fly, you need to have a whole lot of different attributes. Like, you know, you can't be too heavy. You need uh, certain, depending on the well, bird powered flight has so wingspans and shapes and that kind of thing. And you can see why that would, how that, how and why that would impact on your overduct shape, which in turn impacts on your egg shape. Exactly, and like flight, uh, they found that flight may influence this egg shape. And basically, it's for birds to maintain a streamlined body for flight, they tend to e- lay eggs that are more asymmetrical or elliptical, um, so a lot more longer shaped. 
and um, they can basically maximize egg volume without increasing the egg's width, which would obviously slow them down. And this happens with a lot of, um, you know, powerful birds of flight. And interestingly, also with penguins. So mm. a lot of the land-dwelling birds don't have this very, very long-shaped egg. It's more, like, rounded. Um, but penguins, interestingly, have that narrow, streamlined egg, which is thought to be, well, they... About flight, and they're not a flight bird. No, but they can fly, quote-unquote, in the water. Yeah, they do use a similar sort of... Well, propulsion. Yeah, I was trying to think of the right, right way to phrase it. Yeah, propulsion is the best way of putting it, yeah. So they're extremely streamlined, and it obviously influences how their eggs are formed. Hmm. So very cool article. And yeah, that's how eggs got their shape. That's crazy, isn't it? I just... I think one of the interesting... Evolution's amazing. It is. I think one of the interesting things about, like, that's coming up here with eggs is that because they are literally so entwined with reproduction, everything about them has so much selective pressure on them that they're, like, that pretty much everything about them has some sort of evolutionary purpose or use just because they're so important and there's so much pressure going every every direction on the egg. It actually need Like, you go, you don't get a whole lot of superfluous mutations and attributes mm. tagged onto it because there is so much pressure to it. There's no there's not gonna be any peacock feathers on the egg, you know you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> No. Yeah. But obviously the the thickness of the membrane, the calcium content, how, the minerals and all of that is it's gonna have a big influence on it. Also the, how how many the article also spoke about how many eggs in a clutch may influence mm. um, the size of it, but they didn't find any correlation with clutch size of eggs and the shape of them. So it was, again, it's kind of like the the cliff-laying eggs. They actually didn't find any correlation with um, birds that dwell on cliffs and the shape of their eggs. And they found that that's actually, there was no relationship between those oh, two really? things. So it was an initial assumption that they thought, well, these are the factors that may influence it, the cliff height being one of them, and then clutch size being the other. So they actually found it didn't actually influence it, and the um, the membrane itself and how it develops, as well as flight, has a better correlation with the evolution mm. of eggs. Well, that makes sense. Wow. There are a whole lot of interesting egg, beha- egg and egg-laying behaviors, though. I mean, I'm just looking at a few right now. The, for instance, the hoopoe, hoopoe, hoopoe. Hoopoe. Uh, I'm not very good at that. Hoopoe. It's in Zelda. <laughs> Which one is it? It's a bird in Zelda. You'll see it. Okay. Um, they lay their eggs in tree cavities and then secrete a brown, sticky, kind of gross, down, gross-smelling secretion all over them and have, their eggs have specialized little pits in order to make sure they get stay covered and it's like this antimicrobial so, uh, oh. yeah antimicrobial sort of excretion that protects them against bacteria uh, I figured microbial eggs infection. would like the shell itself would protect them from well, shell the, would have pores though mm, and mm. I'm guessing the pore size may differ between birds yeah because mm. some of them you need depending on the egg you need to have a certain level of diffusion of oxygen into the into the inside environment crazy yeah and like there's a way there's a whole bunch of differences between bird eggs and reptile eggs in various ways like you can turn bird eggs if you turn reptile eggs most reptile eggs you'll end up killing them oh because you'll you'll break there's like there's like a bubble of air that they really need to maintain wow and if you turn them you can disrupt it and yeah there's there's a if anyone if, if anyone wants to breed chickens or reptiles or anything 
the incubators, you, you'll know this because you have to get special incubators and you either decide I'm going to manually turn my bird eggs or I'm going to mechanically turn my bird eggs. It's hard to find ones that cross over very well. The more you know. Mm. And off air, we were talking about um, donating blood. And I feel like it's probably like quite important. Just generally, like if you want to do something cool for Easter, you're like, oh, what am I, I going to do? They have chocolate bunnies during Easter too. In, yeah. in a lot of these blood banks, I just want to let you know. The Izzy knows because he has gone and gotten himself chocolate bunny before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I want to. I want to stress that I donated blood. I didn't just go in there and take the bunny. <laughs> like, <laughs> we don't believe you. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But if you want to do something good this Easter, um, blood banks are always looking for blood. So if you can donate, do donate. Um. Uh, me and Izzy are plasma donors, so just strap us up and we'll uh we'll take some. But um, if you get tattoos or anything, they take ages. We should have like a blood donate, like a blood donation show Episode? at some point yeah <laughs> we'll just do it at the blood bank while we're while we're getting the plasma taken live from the <laughs> brisbane city blood bank <laughs> anyway mm. i think we're gonna be talking more about eggs aren't we eggs oh yeah should we talk about uh because it's an excellent show the... that was you guys are one. exasperating <laughs> exasperating <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i had to join in uh, yes of course <laughs> yokes on you folks uh, uh get out of here uh shall we talk about the uh, is the little skate or is it the uh the slightly above average skate. I Which hear kind of about, skate is it? I want to hear about the snakes. Oh, the snakes. Because that's actually really cool. Actually, we'll talk about these guys first because these guys have got the paper and then we'll lead into Fine. The snakes. Okay, so the deep sea skate, uh, the Bathyraja spinosima. I did not, sorry, Latin. Latin is not my language. Latin's not anyone's language, I don't think anymore. It's dead. Ah. Depends who you ask, I suppose. <laughs> uh, so, sorry, the do, uh, the deep sea skate has been found to use. Well, it looks like it's been found to use uh, these hydrothermal vents deep underwater to incubate its eggs. They use them as little nurseries. Uh, and deep sea skates are related to cartilaginous fish like sharks and rays. Mm-hmm. So, lovely family. We, we in fact we talked about another skate. We talked about the little skate when we were talking about the uh, the underlying. They seem to show the underlying neurostructure you need for walking, if you guys remember a few episodes back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 that's what I thought you guys were talking about with skates. I was like, as soon as someone mentioned skates now, I'm like, that's the walking fish. Yeah, that's a little skate. This is the big. This is the deep sea skate. Okay. Mm. Multiple skates. Yes, there's a quite a few. They're quite a primitive. I don't want to say primitive. That sounds mean to the skate. I mean, like, they've been around for a while. They're, like, in the primitive in the same way that crocodiles are primitive. Like, they just haven't. Yeah. They, you know, you don't don't fix what's ain't broken. I prefer calling them like ancient. Ancient, yeah, ancient is yeah. probably a better one. What about like primal? Primal, ooh, that's mm, a good one. Primeval. Uh, uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> no, we're just we're working on the PR for this for the skate department. Uh, so no, these guys have been found to preferentially sort of seek out these above average temperature regions, these quite hot regions, uh, near hydrothermal vents, in order to well, it looks like speed up the incubation time of their embryos. Yeah, and I, I believe um, that like sharks and stuff have a really long incubation time. Generally, mm. just because they they do live for so long, I believe it takes about two years uh, to give birth. Uh, again, I, this would differ widely, widely on the shark, but uh, that sounds about right to me. I'm not a shark expert, though. I want to stress that. Um, yeah, so this sort of enhanced incubation time is definitely an advantage when you know your your sort of general, I don't want to say species, your family of organisms is sort of like typified by these long gestation periods. Well, if it can speed up the process, it's much more beneficial to the species. If we can understand how these things work, we can do a better job at conserving them. 
Yeah. And we can also give us an idea of like how certain uh, sort of reproductive strategies evolved. Because interestingly enough, in the fossil record, there is, well, it looks like we have examples of this in dinosaurs. There was a sauropod of some description, uh, the Cretaceous sauropod dinosaurs, uh, the rare avian megapod. So like an avian kind of dinosaur that was quite large. (laughs) So like a pterosaur. Yeah, something like that. Uh, They were found to preferentially uh, incubate their eggs near volcanic grounds as well. So there is some evidence that this is like an accepted strategy. And when you think about things like temperature-dependent sex uh, determination in reptiles and owl, Mm. temperature and reproduction are, are linked. Well, yeah, it's like uh, crocodiles and turtles. When they bury their eggs, what is it? The males are at the bottom? Yeah. Because of the temperature. Yeah. yeah. I think the higher temperature encourages female Mm, embryos. Yes. Yeah, and so there's more females, which is actually not a bad thing because it means that a bunch of males can... uh, yeah, look until until it gets to the point where there's no males. Yeah, in which case, they and, just they, and even then give it de- birth even then it, de- it does depend because yeah, some of them are capable of pathogenesis. What champions? Yeah, just so cool. like, well, I wish we didn't need this. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> if all the human males had to die off, the females say, will be okay. I think, yeah, I. I want to say that this is an interesting thing about for any guys out there who are thinking of studying uh, sexual biology. It's one of those fascinating ones, or oh, especially evolutionary sexual biology. Where everything you read is like just shit. Get it's like the only period, only period of science in history where shit just keeps getting heaped on males. Uh, <laughs> you guys and your small chromosomes. Yeah, no, but it's because yeah, in general, you're missing chromosomes. In, you mean your yeah. little one? <laughs> <laughs> the little chromosome. That's an interesting. We should we have a Y chromosome special as well. That's an interesting one. Why? Why? <laughs> uh, because like, what is this show today? What is I this? Don't sh- I don't know. know. Let us know if you enjoyed it or not, people. Everyone's going to be like, no. no. It's like a survey and like 100% no. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one answer. It's just so. me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just Jacinta. Uh, because females, generally speaking, are more important to the reproductive st- survival of the species because, look, all the sperm in the world won't help you if you have no eggs. <laughs> and true. And a lot of these species have like, even if you have no sperm, you can do something like parthenogenesis, you can self-fertilize. So just like by the numbers of it, there is less riding on male survival than there is female survival in general in reproductive evolutionary biology. This is why this is why like plants, plant like, a lot of plants have a, a di- sexual dimorphism as well. They have two different gender oh, sexes. Uh, the they hermaphroditic. Yeah, not all. Again, this is not all of them. This is a general. Uh, spread again please don't take this as a universal law but a lot of plants are not male female they are female hermaphrodite as their two genders as their two sexes they don't have genders they don't have society <laughs> oh we don't know I don't want to judge these plants they might have some form of society like algae yeah they, they're, they're slamming me on algae twitter right now <laughs> <laughs> speaking of um, like evolution the evolutionary biology of sex I need to recommend the most interesting book I've read about it and it's great it's like a it's like an ask um an ask column-esque type book oh. it's called dr tatiana's sex advice to all creation <laughs> the definitive guide to the evolutionary biology of sex and basically what it is it's um written in such a way that you have these different animals 
asking Dr. Tatiana for advice about different weird bits of reproduction and all of that. That's so cool. And um, I wish I had the book here and so I could read a few excerpts and it is absolutely great. It just talks about all these weird things like um, masturbating iguanas Um, and a variety of different um, evolutionary questions that animals are asking when it comes to like how they reproduce and stuff and I like it's that done the masturbating iguanas is the one that you remember that's the one that's stuck how, with how you. do you not remember it though <laughs> I, as long as when I'm on my deathbed and like my memories are fading that'll be right up there now it's just like <laughs> masturbating iguanas you know that's a thing that's now. what you're just gonna like mumble yeah on your deathbed yeah it'll uh-huh. be like my rosebud <laughs> But I do, I do highly recommend this book. It's written by Olivia Judson, and again, it's called Dr. Tatiana's Sex Advice to All Creation. Do we want to check on a song? I just want to ask real quick because it's a columnist thing. Is there like a, a missing connections bit where it's like, be me, uh, asexual macropod? Yeah, be you. <laughs> they actually, um, I think there are a lot of microorganisms that do ask as well, like. Again, this book sounds amazing. Can you bring it next week? So I'll we bring can... it next week, and maybe we'll do a few excerpts. Hell yeah! <laughs> Actually, I w- I would love to do oh, that. We should do a reading. We should do a book club. Book club. <laughs> I mean, we could all bring our favorite like I'm, sciencey books. I'm reading Sapiens right now, and I, I really really enjoy it. We'll talk about it in the break. That's right. We talk about you. Um, but you're a natural reaction here on Z Digital, and we're talking about. I think we're now going to be talking about chocolate. Are we talking about chocolate? Are oh, we ready for chocolate? Do you want to talk about the crate for a little while? Oh yeah. Okay, so we talk about interesting egg-laying things with the scapes who like to lay their eggs in geothermal, near-geothermal vents. Just so, just as an aside, what is it with weird reptiles being called objects? Like skate? Well, it's a fish. It's a cartilaginous cartilaginous fish. Yeah, but they're all just like, like they're all just I objects. Think, I think they came first. No. Well, like they skate over, they skate through the water. I think is the idea. A crate is K R A I T, as in the mythological creature. Oh. Sea crate. Yes. Look, fine. Okay, fine. Whatever. Uh, so I'm going to talk about the banded crate real quick, the banded sea crate, because it's another really interesting egg-laying behavior. It has nothing to do with a new paper. This is known. It's just very fascinating. So they're a, they're a sea snake, but it looks like they evolved from like a terrestrial snake. Uh, so their eggs need to be laid on... Li- uh, no, they can't lay their eggs in the ocean. Uh, if they do, they won't, they're not viable. So what they do when they want to breed is they have to go into these uh, tidal caves and then wait for high tide to sweep them up onto like a ledge or something, something high enough that they can wriggle through the sand a little bit. I don't know if you know this, but sea snakes often find a great deal of difficulty with moving on land. Uh, their scales are just not adapted to it anymore. You can see, you can look up videos of sea snakes getting stuck on the beach, unable to find traction. I imagine that's because they don't have, um, the scales don't provide any friction. Yeah, it's basically it. Because like, yeah, it's a whole different beast uh, walking, moving in through the land, moving through the water. So they lay their eggs up there, and then they have to wait for the tide to come back up so they can fly back down. And then that's it. Like, yeah, they have to risk their entire life. Because if they get stuck up there, they'll die. If they don't lay their eggs in a position that are, is away from the water, the eggs will die. <laughs> uh, if they don't lay them to the point where when the eggs hatch, they can easily make their way to the water to go back out into their main environment, then, then their young will die. It's this whole that mess. That seems a bit silly, but... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Evolution doesn't have a plan. It just happens and then has to adapt. Yeah, if anyone's ever tries talking about intelligent design, ask them what's intelligent about that design. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can think of a whole lot of easier ways of doing it, if you ask me. Uh, fascinating animals, though. Incredibly venomous. Uh, do watch out. If you get attacked by a snake that seems to want to just go upwards. 
Oh, sea snakes in general. I think basically all snakes in the ocean are pretty venomous. You gotta watch out. We also don't have a lot of like the entire family of the lapidae, which mostly water snakes of various varieties, not all sea snakes. Well, lapidae uh, consists of sea snakes, but also um, cobras. Mm. And, yeah, so lapidae. So there's two main types of uh, venomous snake families. That's your Viperidae, so your vipers, and then your lapidae, which consists of your cobras, mambas, and crates. Hmm. Yeah, uh, they, we don't have any antivenom for basically any of the lapidae. Uh, yeah. So if you yeah. get fit, yeah. you're on your own. And like some of them have really terrible ways of getting you, like... You bleed out your eyes quite a lot. It's it's just not fun. Wouldn't recommend. This is going to be a terrible segue into chocolate. <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> See, I was thinking of doubling back because I found an excerpt from Dr. Tatiana's... Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. Is it about the masturbating um, iguanas? No. I, obviously, I can't find all the articles, but this is a small excerpt. So this is from, just mentioned before the break, this book called Dr. Tatiana's Sex Advice to All Creation, The Definitive, Definitive Guide to the Evolutionary Biology of Sex. And this is just a sample of what you would expect from this book. And it starts off by saying, Dear Dr. Tatiana, my boyfriend is the handsomest golden potter I ever saw. He got beautiful golden fur on his back, creamy white fur on his belly. He smells delicious and he has ever such dainty hands and feet. There is just one thing, please, Dr. Tatiana. Why is his penis covered with enormous spines? (laughs) And that is from Spooked in Gabon. (laughs) And Dr. Tatiana's reply starts off with, All the better to tickle you with, my dear. (laughs) At least, I'll bet that's a big part of the reason. Golden potos are little-known relations of bush babies, small, night-climbing primates that are distant cousins of monkeys and apes. If you look at your cousins, you'll see your beloved is not alone. Bush babies and many other primates have monstrous penises. Many of them look like medieval torture instruments. They have spikes and knobs and bristles and are often twisted into weird and sinister shapes. By comparison, the human penis is dull, notable only for its girth. Penises are far more than just sperm delivery, you see. If females mate with a number of males, each subsequent suitor will sire a larger proportion of her children if his sperm are the ones that do the trick. A male who can stimulate his mate to take up more of his sperm or who can somehow get rid of the sperm of his rival will spread more of his genes than his less artful fellows. Thus, the first consequence of female promiscuity is that males are under great pressure to outdo another in all aspects of love. For this task, the penis is an important tool. And that was from the chapter, Let's Slip the Whores of War. (laughs) (laughs) It is an excellent book. And I feel like we should maybe do some regular excerpts. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, no, I think we should do serious thought about reading series. <laughs> reading series is. Now, I am going to talk about chocolate now, okay. which it has nothing to do with anything <laughs> that we've been talking about, but I figure it's probably it's probably time. Wait, no, I, uh, I got a shot at a segue here. Okay, go. Okay, Hit so me. because of the, the, the way the banded sea crate needs to lay its eggs, it is threatened by climate change because as the sea levels rise with climate change the the habitats where they want to lay their eggs shift you know what else is affected by, affected climate, by change. climate change chocolate but we're oh. not going to talk about that we're going to talk about um brain function and how it's not a thing so um <laughs> this particular article is written by on the conversation by amy wright 
I don't think that's how you say her name. I'm really sorry. Um, and Claire Collins. Um, and it was talking about how... So in sometimes you get headlines that tell us, you know, we've all seen the headlines, like chocolate improves brain function, chocolate improves mood. You know, a dark piece of chocolate has full of antioxidants yeah. that can help your heart. And you're like... Okay, no, but sure. Let's let's. It's all over the headlines. Everywhere's talking about it. So, you know, does these kind of things happen? This particular one that they're talking about is um, was published in the peer-reviewed journal Appetite and found that memory and abstract thinking improved in those reporting to have more chocolate consumption. Now, problematic yeah. problems number one. I think somebody at home can already see some of the problems here. Yeah. Do you want to? Oh well, because it's uh, you said. Can you read that? Read that out again. Um, found that memory and abstract thinking improved in those reporting more chocolate consumption. Yeah, so you can you can see right in the title, like the paper itself is clearly not advertising it in the same way that the things about it are. Like it's saying that memory and was it memory and uh, um, so clearly, abstract thinking. Clearly, abstract I'm thinking. not eating enough chocolate. Of course, uh, not. memory and abstract <laughs> thinking. Uh, are better in people who consumed more chocolate. It doesn't say that chocolate caused this. Sure does. It says that people who they found a correlation between people who eat more chocolate and that. And but could that, that correlation just be like put down to maybe sugar? Because hasn't sugar been shown oh, to it, just generally well, yeah, um, improves? Yeah, improves studying and all of well, that. Well, it could be any number of things. Because like if you consume more chocolate, you could also be like. The more chocolate you consume could be correlated with your socioeconomic position, which is correlated with a whole bunch of other factors. Like the point is that you, it's really hard to divine. Correlation doesn't equal causation. Yeah. So yeah, that's exactly what the the researchers talked about here too. So there, there was there was quite a few participants. There was nine hundred and sixty eight participants um, mm. from a particular longitudinal study in Maine. Um, so it's followed the same group of New Yorkers for more than thirty five years. Um, they undertake questionnaires and physical examinations at various intervals. So researchers can determine changes associated with aging, the development of heart disease, and also cognitive performance. But here's the thing, right? Like, and this is this happens in a lot of those kind of studies um is that you if you test for a a lot lots of characteristics in healthy participants um sometimes you will just end up on something that looks like it's that is um statistically significant so there's been this really really interesting study with this guy who um a couple of years ago now he did his own study but it was gonna be crap so he got (laughs) 20 people i think um and he did he, he tested a bunch of things and then gave them chocolate. I'm pretty sure it was chocolate. Um, and so he gave him chocolate and he went, okay, um, we're going to test your, you know, BMI. We're going to test your heart rate. We're going to test your, you know, knowledge of this. We're going to test like all of these different things. And then found that when he like checked them all, one of them, and I can't remember which one it was, was statistically significant. So they wrote a paper about it and they put it in a journal and they got a bunch of interviews and they got, you know, people were asking them to come on the show and talk about chocolate and how it was so much better for you than than things. And they actually just managed to make this work, even though he came into the idea going, this is going to be a crap study. No one called him out on it. There was nothing. Eventually he wrote this article being like, you guys suck. <laughs> there, and this is hilarious because you do find some really excellent sort of deliberately funny, spurious correlation ones like one of my favorite ones was published in like cosmos magazine a while ago years ago now about there's almost a linear correlation between chocolate consumed per capita and nobel prize laureates per capita in a country uh and like clearly that doesn't mean anything it has no inherent value in that measure at all but it just like happens to be a statistically significant correlation (laughs) 
You know what? Actually, I'm. This is going to be terrible. I'm literally just going to change what I what I was talking about and talk about this guy because I found him. Um, his name's John Boner. Boner. Bohannon. Bohannon. Um, And he literally... So a team of German researchers had found that people on a low-carb diet lose weight 10% faster if they ate a chocolate bar every day. That's what he went with. So he had a chocolate bar every day um, while on a low-carb diet. And they found that, yeah, they lose weight 10% faster, apparently. Um, Apparently, slim by chocolate, the headlines blared. Um, Yeah, and... So apparently, so this guy is called John, um, and he's got a PhD, but it's a PhD in molecular biology, not humans. Um, and the Institute of Diet and Health is not a thing, even though all of the uh, websites said that it was. Instead, it was just a website, um, and the study was authentic, but it was only... You know, they had a certain number of people. The statistically significant benefits of chocolate were reported are based on actual data, but it was very bad science. So he came into it, like, he deliberately did a bad study to Mm. prove a point. Is this correct? Yeah, definitely. All right. So that's a good thing because it highlights the issues with the publishing system, how a lot of studies are conducted, especially when it comes to statistical modeling. There is a lot of rigor that needs to go into your statistical models to actually prove that they are not only significant, but also that they're valid. Because you can manipulate your stats in so many different ways to give you a p-value, which is greater than 0.05, which means it has a 95% confidence interval. Um, so it's so it's pretty significant. And it's just um, it's interesting that he deliberately went into this, but... A lot of studies that try to do that just won't get published, depending on what journal you're aiming for as well. But I think because it's such a uh, sexy science story, everyone loves chocolate, it's easily understandable, stuff like that gets through the cracks. Yeah, well, here's the thing, right? So what they did is they actually, they didn't have that many people. So they literally had five men and 11 women. Um, And so they went on a diet for three weeks. They used Facebook to recruit subjects around Frankfurt. Um, They offered 150 euros to everyone, anyone willing to go on a diet. Um, And they, so they ran the experiment. They did a bunch of stuff. So they went, okay, here's, let me see if I can just find the questionnaires. Um... Yes, they followed a low-carb diet plus a daily 1.5-ounce bar of dark chocolate. Um, And then the the control group... So, okay, they split the the team up into three groups, okay? The 17 people or 16 people, they split it into three groups. So one of them got a low-carb diet, one of them got a low-carb diet plus chocolate, and the rest were given no changes to their current diet. Um, But, yeah, they they gave it a bunch of things, and one of them worked, if you measure a large number of things but a small number of people, you are almost guaranteed to get a statistically significant result. Our study included 18 different measurements, weight, cholesterol, sodium, blood protein levels, sleep quality, well-being from 15 people. Mm. Unsurprisingly, they found a, they found a positive. I, yeah. lo- I love these spurious correlation papers, though. Like one of my favorite ones, uh, linking the number of astronaut deaths in space to... How uh, the number as it is as a negative has a negative relationship with the number of people who wear seatbelts in cars, <laughs> uh, like in the eighties. <laughs> in the yeah, it's, it's it's ridiculous. Like uh, I'll show you, you. You need to see the chart for people at home, but it's just hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> just hilarious. I think the the classic one. Uh, <laughs> yes. I think the classic one is pirates and climate change. 
Oh yes. Do you remember that one? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, if, and on a different on a different tack though, because it's not a statistical correlation. Oh, it kind of is, but it's um, uh, dimensional analysis. Uh, dimensional analysis where like you know if it's within an exponential error, you can sort of think about it maybe as a fundamental law. So like if you p- divide the Planck energy by the pressure at the Earth's core, multiply it by the Prius combined EPA gas mileage divided by the minimum width of the English Channel, it pretty much equals pi on the dot. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and, like, that's clearly not a fundamental law, but the error is so small that, like, it's in, within the bounds of calling it a fundamental law. <laughs> that's ridiculous. I love it. Um, but, yeah, so that's the kind of thing that I just, I don't know, that's... It just really frustrates me. Every time you see a study, if you see a headline in a paper, not in a paper, in, in you know, some kind of newspaper, some kind of something that says chocolate's good for you, here's why you should take it every day, here's why eating dark chocolate is, is, you know, just think about it for two seconds. Sugar, we know, is not good for you. Sugar is one of those things that is literally causing heart disease. It's literally causing, like, and in small doses, it's okay, but don't just no, assume okay. that it's good for you. Sugar sugar is, like, you know, 100% necessary. We need sugars to live. We do not need the level of sugars we consume is a, is a different yes, box of Yes, everything in moderation. Like, we would not have survived without sugars and fats. Well, no, is... we're, we're literally made of, you know, proteins sugars. and sugars, like carbohydrates yeah. and stuff. No, no, it's not, everything's good in small doses, but the idea that chocolate is good for you because it's going to help your thing is probably based on shit science. I mean, it's it's also like Language people are like, <laughs> that's okay. No. It's also people who are like, oh, five cups of coffee a day is good for you. It's like, well, potentially as the same thing with like wine. But if you're having like massively large cups of coffee with tons of milk in, it's going to negatively affect you. Yeah. Also, like these things also exist on a bit of balance in a continuum where it's like, uh, yeah, it might be good for you in one way to drink those five cups of coffee, but you know your digestive system and you know coffee's a laxity, uh, is a diuretic. Uh, it's going to dehydrate. Like you, everything needs in balance, and like the nothing, nothing just has one effect. There is no magic good for you pill. No. Uh, Apart from eating lots of vegetables and keeping your diet relatively healthy, your natural reaction. <laughs> Here on Zed Digital, and I think what are we? What are we talking about? Are we finishing with? What no, are, no, no. We're uh, we're talking about more we chocolate. St- yeah, we're still on chocolate. Oh. You're in such a rush to get there, and and I know, and now I'm just giving it away. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, is your Easter egg bad for the environment? Yes. Yep. Like everything else. Um, but a your consumerist <laughs> lifestyle is bad for the environment. Let's being alive is bad for the environment. <laughs> <laughs> Having babies is bad for the environment. There is no ethical consumption. Yeah. Unfortunately, but you know, that's not on you. Like you know, just try and live your best life. But moving on, <laughs> but moving on to chocolate. So a brand spanking new study, like literally brand spanking new. Um, it's being published in the where is it? Um, Food Research uh, International Journal for April 2018, and it looks at the environmental impacts of chocolate production and consumption in the UK. And basically what they've done is they've looked at three different types of chocolates and tracked its um, the processing from the raw materials all the way to the waste produced from after selling the chocolate. So we're talking about like farming waste, we're talking about 
Are you talking about packaging waste as well? Everything. Everything? So. They've literally tracked everything. Um, so the study was done in the UK, and apparently uh, it's, well, like many countries, it's the UK's favorite confectionery product, with the nation preferring milk over dark chocolate, and the industry is worth approximately £4 billion. And the statistic was from the... In um, in 2014, it's apparently set to grow by a further nine percent by 2019, and on a global scale, the UK is the sixth highest chocolate consuming country in the world. And of average, each person individually gets to approximately eight kilograms per year, which is equivalent to about 157 Mars bars per year. Wow, yeah. that's more than what it's like. Oh, sorry, no, it's on. It, I was going to say it's more than a Mars bar uh, every two days, but it's not. It's about a Mars bar every what, like three days. Bit, bit, bit over that. Mm. Yeah, it's a lot of Mars bars. Mm. Mars bars mm. are okay. Oh yeah, who doesn't like a good Mars bar? I yeah. quite like Mars bar. I definitely don't have chocolate bat often though. No. Mars sponsor us, bros. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I feel like this time of year though, with Easter and everything, it's just chocolate appears everywhere. Mm. Yeah. Lots of random free chocolate being dotted around, like Easter eggs just randomly appearing on your desk. It's it's great. Well, it's- I don't have that happen to me. Working from home is you good buy, sometimes. You should surprise like she, she yourself. She buys it for herself. Like, oh, who gave me this? <laughs> I, I actually, I actually did buy myself a bunny this year. I was like, look, this is my one bunny, and then I got another one from my mum. <laughs> should get a bilby. Get the get the, the Easter yeah. bilbies. I don't think they taste as good though. No, like, I want to support the bilby without having to deal with the bad taste chocolate. <laughs> buy the Easter bilby. Just give it to someone on the street. <laughs> yep. So um, the people of the study. Um, and it was conducted by researchers at the University of Manchester. They basically tracked literally everything from the raw materials used to produce the chocolates um, to such as like the sugar, palm oil, cocoa derivatives. And they also tracked every single step, including transports. So they looked at um, the raw materials, which included flour, cocoa butter, sugar, milk powder, whey powder, salt, um, eggs, and a whole bunch of other things. They looked at the transport for each one of those raw materials, and then they looked at the packaging components. They also looked at manufacturing. So that manufacturing process included cleaning um, and water treatments and the energy and water used to go into those things. And then they also looked at distribution and consumption and end of life, which includes distributing it to the stores, the retail cost, the consumption, and how that waste was managed. And they looked at three different types of chocolates. So they looked at molded chocolates, or they looked at chocolate bars, or they looked at chocolate in a bag. And they found that um, around 10,000 liters of water is needed to produce a kilogram of chocolates. Oh my god, <laughs> that's a that's a lot of water, um, and that land use change associated with cocoa production increases the total global warming potential by three to four times. Uh. Which, which once again puts in threat the banded crate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, And basically, the study estimates that the UK chocolate industry produces about 2.1 million tons of greenhouse gases a year. So what can you do? Is there anything that you can, like, I mean, I guess not eat chocolate, but like... Well, no, it's, I mean, it's a growing industry. sustainable chocolate? I'm sure you can, but this is a growing industry that is not slowing down. Chocolate consumption is associated with literally every major holiday of the year. It is just... Yeah, she's it's got that big that. ass consumerism thing going on. But do you think days. there are people who like are having a chocolate bar like every day? Like they're pushing. That oh, I, I, I would one hundred percent say there are people who have chocolate bar every day. I just yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, we we might not, but there's people who have several soft drinks a day, several chocolates a day, several packets of crisps a day. Mm. We don't, we don't personally. And if you do, that's you know, that's I'm, okay for yeah, you. We're not judging you. Like it's yeah. fine. You do you. You might have a, you might have a stressful life. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. We we ain't, we ain't here to judge. Yeah. Yeah, and if you're one of those people that do do that and don't gain weight, I, I hate you. Yeah. Okay. We're judging you. <laughs> yeah. Judging you and your healthy metabolism. That's a different box of frogs. <laughs> and yeah, so I the study is actually pretty in depth, um, and it says so things that they suggested that could be used to. Uh, combat this is reducing the whole process so targeting different types of areas in the process so it can be reduced by 14 to 19 percent through various improvement options and some of those improvement options include things like looking at the packaging and the water and the distribution and all of that Um, and obviously this is just it's not a study to make you feel bad about eating chocolates no no, it's just a, it's an awareness. It just has a byproduct of doing that. Mm. <laughs> so, I mean, the results suggest that the raw materials production is the major hotspot across all impact categories. Oh, really? So, like, uh, one particular, like the the farming or the... Obviously, where you get your palm oil and sugar and all of those oh, things. Oh, I can definitely see palm oil contributing a lot to it. There's a lot of slash and burn tactics for growing palm oil. Yeah. Um, also, transport has a significant contribution to ozone depletion, Fossil fuel depletion and formation of photochemical oxidants, like everything. Everything needs to be transported from when you get those raw materials right until the end where you have the waste of the actual chocolate themselves. Um, And they say production of these raw materials should be targeted for environmental improvements. Um, The impacts from raw materials are largely due to milk powder production, uh, while sugar and cocoa derivatives are significant contributors to some of the impacts. So, I mean, this makes you feel terrible, obviously, because it makes everyone feel terrible. But if you do want to make your impact slightly less, you can actually recycle the um, aluminium foil that's on the outside of um, chocolates. If you put it into a big bowl um, and chuck it in your recycle bin, they can recycle it. Mm. Uh, this is something that, yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about. And it can really change how you interact with all the products around you. Is when you see something that has like that is con- packaged in plastic or metal or anything, remember that that had to be dug up out of the ground somewhere. Mm. Or plastic uh, created. Well, plastic, but uh, plastic is oil, oil. mostly petrochemical. So yeah, it, yeah. it's all, it had to be dug out of, well, extracted, drilled out of the ground and processed. Like the, the literally somewhere ten thousand kilometers from you. Yeah, it had to be dug. There's a great, you know thing about like a plastic fork and it's like what is what a time to be alive when you know all these different things to make a plastic fork is you know more like easier deemed easier to do than just reusing a metal one Mm -hmm. like and well i mean the biggest thing for me with this is that it as a as an individual person it is very hard to actually have an impact and going to the source of these entire processes is one way to combat it and the researchers have suggested composting the dairy manure um so basically that reduces energy consumption in milk parlor by 20 percent and then supplementing the cow's feed with linseed could reduce this global warming potential of chocolates by 14 to 19 percent damn so not buying a couple of chocolates is not going to do anything but targeting these um upstream or downstream Uh, upstream and downstream processes will have a greater impact. So how we manufacture and how we get our consumerism out there is probably bigger than us trying to, 
you know, crush a whole bunch of aluminium balls together? Not buying a couple of chocolates definitely will not do anything. But that being said, having the um, using your buying power and using your collective buying power to get companies to try and do these practices and to you know lower their water costs and lower that kind of stuff can do something and that's where the real changes happen where whereas if you go no we're not okay with this us as a consumer is not okay with you doing this and they do change i mean they, they'll stop advertising in certain areas they'll do this like if if they think that their bottom dollar is affected enough hmm. they'll happily do it to nadia's point though uh a lot of these changes do need to come from, like, there's only so much you can do as a consumer. When we say stuff like there's no such thing as ethical consumption, please don't take that as, like, a paralyzing no, guilt thing. No, there's definitely ethical consumption out there, and a lot of things today, especially where you can consume a lot more ethically rather than mass-produced. It uh, might not be perfect consumption. If anyone consumption. would like to, to um, go in with the farm co-op with me, yeah. I'm, I'm down. I would like to say, like, I don't, I don't know particularly about ethical consumption as a possibility of this, but I, what I would want to say is, like, it doesn't, you shouldn't cripple you with guilt or paralyze you because you can't do it because definitely it's out of the hands of the majority of people to consume ethically. It just, you do not have the resources to do it. Uh, time. Time, uh, money, money, effort, uh, just everything. Uh, and I like, don't feel paralyzed by that. But look to where you can and agitate for change where you can. Yeah. Agitate. Mm. <laughs> Rather, portable Z motto. Rather than going to like big chain stores, try produce, uh, try consume a little bit more locally. Um, or you know, like if you're going to consume meat, try go from like the more smaller butchers rather than the big chain stores. Mm. Um, and if you can't afford it, that's okay too, man. Like I said, life's tough. Like like life's tough. Yeah, seriously, don't don't get don't beating yourself up ain't going to help. Yeah, and buy yourself that chocolate bar. Just don't <laughs> buy one every day. <laughs> yeah. Or do. Good. Who knows? Yeah. Or do. Don't let us Whatever. tell you how to... Don't, don't take your advice how to live from three people on the radio. Um, your natural reaction here on Zed Digital. And real quick, there's a spaceship falling out of the sky. Yeah. So there's an out-of-control Chinese space station hurtling towards Earth. Crap. Nah, not really. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a plot to one of them movies coming out soon, I suppose. I don't know. Deep Impact kind of thing? It's not that big. No. It's, you know, only... Um, 8,500 kilograms and it's about the size of a bus and apparently that's all you need for it to be burnt up in the atmosphere pretty much in its entirety well no there's the it is estimated so okay uh, Tiangon 1 also known as Heavenly Place is uh, <laughs> it's fallen back to Earth <laughs> yeah so it is uh, one of the first it's China's first prototype space station and it served as both manned lab so uh, a manned laboratory and experimental test beds demonstrate um, docking capabilities and other orbital rendezvous. And it was launched in September of 2011. And basically it's been operational and the Chinese have been gathering data for... Um, Seven years. Well, yeah. So the aim is this is to place a larger modular station in orbit by 2023. And... This Chang'ong one was initially projected to be deorbited in 2013 and then to be replaced, uh, following by larger Chang'ong two and Chang'ong three modules. And I do apologize for my pronunciation of that. I can't do tonal languages. Um, it's okay. But as of March 2018, it's still aloft and it lost communication signal with. So it 
it can't be communicated with, so it's no longer under control. Yeah, it was quite interesting actually. There was a, I think it was a um amateur, a bunch of amateur astronomers that were looking at this ship and was like, that's not where it should be. That's not where, and they were actually the ones that were like, pretty sure the ship's out of control, guys. Yeah, so in 2016, they found that um, China's space agency had lost control of the station. Um, And then in September, they conceded they had lost control. (laughs) And officials speculated the station would re-enter and burn up in the atmosphere in late 2017. But that date has been moved to this weekend. Yeah, so if you, I mean, do you reckon you could see the, it would act like a comet, right? Like you'd be able to see in the, um, like like a meteor shower type thing. Yeah, and they say if um, the sky is clear enough and you're looking at it at the right time, it can look like a very pretty meteor shower. Um, and they don't really know where it's predicted to crash. Um, basically, it's difficult to predict, and the European Space Agency has said that um, the estimates of the crash zone include everywhere except for Russia, Canada, and Northern Europe. But <laughs> the probability of actually being hit by any of the debris, so it's estimated that some debris being about 100 kilograms, will not burn up, yeah. like some of bits of engine and everything. But the probability of you being hit by it is like in infinitesimal. But enough if enough of you call in sick, somebody will have to be believed. <laughs> so yeah, okay, work sure. together, South Australia. I believe in you. All right. So um, we're going to have to wrap up now. We have definitely gotten to the end of the show. Just quickly, we've been talking about eggs. We've been talking about chocolate. Tangents. So many tangents. This week has been really odd. You'll be back to your normal broadcasting next week. We do have a guest, so we'll have to be on our best behavior. No, we don't. Uh, I will have to duck out after an hour next week, though, for my announcer training. Yeah, because Izzy's going to be a fully-fledged announcer, which is going to be exciting. Yep. Yeah, and that's your action here on Z Digital. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We appreciate you being here. You guys are the best. Bye. See ya.